0: Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called Who Are We? Identity in Crisis. In the chair is Ella Wheeler. Hello, everyone. Let's start on time. Welcome to this second session of the Battle of Ideas Festival. Who are we? Identity in Crisis. My name is Ella Whelan. I work with the Academy of Ideas. I'm the co-convener of this year's festival uh, and delighted to be chairing today's discussion. A bit of an oblique title, who are we? <laughs> um, the, the issue of identity, um, what used to maybe have been something, an abstract discussion that you might have heard in philosophy lectures, but has now become, identity has become a central focus for so much of contemporary politics. Obviously, there is identity politics, which is a phrase I think gets chucked around so much that people forget what it really means. But a sense of who we are and how we define ourselves has less become a kind of process that we go through through life of figuring out who we are, but has in many ways become quite a fixed, determined thing that you know immediately um, who you are, what your identity is and often you spend a lot of time in political debate defending that identity, or some might say being obsessed with it. So asking the question of who we are, but also this idea of whether or not identity is in crisis, whether in actual fact there's a contradiction here, that the more we seem to know who we are, I am speaking as a woman and that kind of thing, actually the less we know about our identity, the less less we feel confident in our identity, hence the crisis bit of that title. So the way we're going to do this session is we have two speakers who are going to introduce their thoughts for about 10 to 15 minutes and then we're going to open out for discussion um, in True Battle of Ideas style. So I'll introduce them in the order that they're going to speak. First we have here on my right, Dr. Rakib Asan. Rakib is a research fellow who sits in both the Henry Jackson Society's Center on Radicalization and Terrorism and the Center on Social and Political Risk. And he is the author of a forthcoming, very exciting book from Swift Press which is called Manufactured Grievance, the Modern Left and Britain's Ethnic Minorities, which is going to be out uh, in June of next year. Uh, Rakib is a columnist at Spiked and he also writes everywhere, you'll have seen his name everywhere from you know, in The Telegraph, in The Daily Mail, The Sun, The Spectator and lots of other publications. He's also a regular contributor to, on TV and radio, on GMB, on GB News, on Sky and all over the place. Um, and has it's often commented on the issue of identity and how it plays into contemporary political debates. So that's Rakim. And then next up we have on my left here, Professor Frank Faradi. Uh, Frank is a sociologist and a social commentator and he's published widely about controversies relating to everything from health and parenting and children to food and new technology and uh, his books include a long list of them to terror, culture of fear, paranoid parenting, tolerance, authority, uh, populism and the European culture wars. Uh, he's one of these very irritating people who did a lot during the pandemic and was very <laughs> prolific um, <laughs> while the rest of us were making banana bread and scratching our backsides so uh, towards the start of the pandemic he released um, a book called why borders matter why humanity must relearn the art of drawing boundaries which was really about not just boundaries in the physical sense of countries but also about our internal boundaries and how society organizes itself um, during the pandemic he published a, a book called democracy under siege don't let them lock it down which wasn't just about the pandemics and the lockdowns threats to Um, democracy, but also to a more broad question of why democracy has never really truly been realized in the 21st century. And then most recently, he hasn't had time to breathe, he's published this, A Hundred Years of Identity Crisis, Culture War Over Socialization, um, which is a fantastic book and is available at our bookshop, and Frank will be uh, happy to sign a few of those for you after this session. He regularly also comments on radio and television and has appeared all over the place, Radio for Sky News, and writes for a number of publications. So that's our panel. Um, We'll get kicked off and then we'll we'll prepare your questions and comments and we'll come up to you. So can you all please welcome Raqib first?
1: Uh, firstly, I'd like to thank everyone for coming uh, to this event. I think the turnout's absolutely fantastic, and I hope it makes for a very intellectually stimulating conversation. Uh, as uh, Ella kindly introduced my forthcoming book, Manufactured Grievance, um, it's going to say what it does on the tin. Essentially, it's going to expose the degree to which I feel narratives have been cultivated and produced in Britain which aren't rooted in reality. And I do feel a big part of the book is developing this concept of there being a grievance industrial complex in modern-day Britain. It's very much sector-wide. It's a a very serious social infrastructure, which ultimately, whether it's down to uh, financial motives or a form of moral grandstanding, people looking to cover for their own personal shortcomings... It's ultimately peddling a vision of modern day Britain that I don't share at all. Uh, Just to talk a little bit about my own background, I'm from Luton, which I'm very proud to be from a town where it's really helped me develop a thick skin uh, in terms of my (laughs) background of Bangladeshi Muslim origin. So I should be someone, you know, that when you look at my background, all too often I'm told by. Um, many people on the contemporary British left, and I still identify as a leftist. There's no two ways about that. I'm generally supportive of an all-encompassing welfare state. I care about the quality of public services. The the reality of the matter is I went to a state school, and without the support I had from those teachers there, many of them who are male, working class, hard as nails, had a really strong emphasis on discipline, things which which I think are considered to be unfashionable nowadays on much of the left. I wouldn't be where I am today. It's as simple as that. But one of the main things and the biggest advantage that I had in my, um, in my life is that I came from a stable family unit. I came from a you know, loving, stable household, very well-ordered. And I think that when we're discussing what is one of the greatest inequalities in modern day Britain, it is whether or not you hail from a stable family unit or whether you come from an unstable family unit. And all too often when I hear voices on the left, It's almost describing the family unit as some sort of reactionary enterprise. I find it absolutely remarkable, if I'm being honest. We can talk about the welfare state, something that I'm supportive of, but I also think it should be a springboard to personal responsibility, again, something that's not particularly fashionable in certain elements of the left. But the finest social safety net that you will have in modern-day Britain, if you come from a stable family unit and you hail from a local community that cares about you, there's no two ways about that. And I think... I do feel when I look at the modern day Labour Party, I don't see them talking about those kind of vectors of advantage. That's how how I'd consider them to be. And I feel when you look at forms of disadvantage, those kind of things aren't really talked about all that much. And I do feel while racism in itself remains a real force in the UK, I do feel that it's, it's almost a case where racial identity is placed at the forefront of all all debates on disadvantage when I think that there's many things that are being left by the wayside, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, In terms of concepts, which I feel are deeply unhelpful, that have accelerated in popularity uh, on the modern left, concepts such as white privilege, white oppression, Uh, I've heard people in the think tank community call this government a white nationalist regime a government that has recently created bespoke resettlement routes for Hong Kongers who are looking to flee from Chinese state tyranny and Afghans following the rapid t- takeover of the Taliban. Now, if that's white nationalism, I'll I'd, I'd, I'd be completely honest with you, I think that it just shows how crackers some elements of the left of and truly become. Now, I've always said that we can do a lot more when it comes to boosting equality of opportunity in modern-day Britain but I do feel that there have been some grossly inaccurate caricatures of Britain that's been made of late. The reality of the matter is when you compare uh, Britain to other multi-ethnic, white-majority societies, it fares much better than many other Western European countries when it comes to providing anti-discrimination protections on the grounds of race, on the grounds of ethnicity and religion as well. And I think that if I just talk about my own personal background, if I could just kindly go back to that... You, ha- you have a situation where I feel that Britain is actually one of the best places in the world to live if you're Muslim. I'll be absolutely honest with you. And that's, refle- that's not me saying that. That's reflected in the survey data. There's been polling which shows that over three in four British Muslims think that Britain is a good place to live as a Muslim. Now, truthfully, how many people in this world would have thought that? Largely because of the caricatures, the fact that British Muslims, as a homogenous monolithic bloc, are portrayed as some kind of victimised group that they feel that they're living in a country which is deeply Islamophobic, a term that I don't necessarily like. I prefer the term anti-Muslim prejudice, because I think there's a a dangerous conflation between religious ideology and a particular uh, religious group that is, unfortunately, that conflation is made when we look at existing definitions of Islamophobia. And if, if you really look at it, when you look at ethnic minorities more generally, For example, when you look at educational attainment, many ethnic minorities are steaming ahead of of their white British counterparts. If you look uh, at economics, if you look at the the top three highest earning groups, ethnic groups by median hourly pay, the top is people of white Irish origin, um, but then you also have people of Chinese origin. It's Chinese origin and Indian origin workers. So even though I feel that you know, we can talk about boosting equality of opportunity, I'm a big fan of perhaps introducing more name-blind applications, you know, trying to address uh, CV penalties which exist in the labour market. I think we have to be realistic and honest about how much progress this country has made when it comes to race relations. I, I think if I could just, uh, if I look at one example, France, France, because of its rigid secular universalism, it has a political culture which is deeply against the mere collection of data broken down by race and ethnicity. So how on earth can they possibly truly measure the degree of ethnic and racial penalties which exist in the labour market or in other sectors such as housing if they're not even interested, or rather they have a political culture which is sceptical of collecting that kind of data? So all in all, when it comes to my forthcoming book, Manufactured Grievance, it's essentially exposing what I consider to be a deeply divisive social infrastructure, whether it's down to financial profit, moral grandstanding, or making them feel good about themselves because they haven't achieved the way that what they wanted in life. Um, this, is, this is an infrastructure that needs to be challenged. It needs to be, com- it needs to be combated And there's far too many voices within that infrastructure which gets platformed. Now, that's absolutely fine, but I think there's a lack of balance, you could say, when it comes to those debates on race relations, who are the kind of ethnic minority individuals which are, well, essentially contacted to discuss these kind of issues. Thankfully, as Ella kindly mentioned, I have made some headway in terms of my writing, in terms of my media appearances, but the reality is for far too long there's been, I would consider to be more grievance-oriented voices, people who indulge in the politics of victimhood for a range of motivations who have been platformed. And I think that those kind of individuals, they portray themselves to be representatives of particular ethnic and religious groups. I think that's deeply unhelpful from a social cohesion perspective. And I care a great deal about my country. I want it to be a high-trust, democratically-satisfied society... But if those kind of voices, if you allow vocal minorities to seize the narrative when it comes to matters of race relations and uh, community cohesion, then you won't achieve the kind of society that most of us would like to live in. So all in all, be my, um, that is, those are the kind of themes that are going to be tackled in my forthcoming book, Manufactured Grievance. Ella has kindly mentioned that that will be published in June 2022. I can say that everything's going according to plan. The writing is coming along very, very nicely. No um, and uh, you know, if if you'd like to sort of explore these kind of themes more deeply, feel free to buy it, pre-order on Amazon. You know, fourteen ninety nine. I, I, I consider it. I, I consider it to be an absolute bargain. But uh, so all in all, I'm going to it there. I don't want to dither on too much. Um, and that, that's me done for my introductory statement. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks very much, Rakeeb. Okay, Frank, you. your
2: opening thoughts. Yeah, I'm going to stand up because i got an inferior complex <laughs> being so short. Um, one of the things I'd like to talk about is how that book that Ella's got in front of her came to be written. And I think what started off was the fact that I began to realize at some point in my life that everybody seemed to accept the uh, predominant position of identity, that somehow your identity in terms of who you are, its politicization was the most important thing in the world. And I was also puzzled by the fact that it wasn't just simply, because people often say, oh, it's the left, the crazy left. You know, it's the cultural Marxists that are responsible for this. But actually, when you think about it, if you look at the behavior of the conservative party, the conservative government, they're kind of bending over backwards to promote transgenderism as a political way of life. I mean, Theresa May, not exactly a cultural Marxist by any definition, you know, sort of gives transgenderism this kind of stamp of authority. And when you then look a little bit closer, you realize that actually, if you or your child or your brother or sister gets a job at Google, or you happen to work for any any of the big tech companies, or if you work for the Bank of America, pretty soon one of the first things that will happen to you when you, when you sign up is they send you on a training course and this, on this training course you will learn about the fact that if you happen to look like I do that I'm privileged you know sort of that somehow uh, I'm not just simply privileged but if I deny my privilege I'm really fragile you know uh, my very denial uh, in, in a sense should be seen as an admission of guilt. And then you kind of get, get, get told all these things which between you and me are totally crazy, but which are you know, sort of seen as being Bible truths to the point at which this is what they teach children in our schools. So I was just very interested, you know, how did this come about? Because maybe, maybe I'm a little bit you know, sort of crazy, but very often when I hear things being said, uh, in the name of identity politics, it contradicts my reality. That's not really what I see uh, when I look, and, and, and look at the, the world outside of me. So I became very, very interested in you know, where did this come from? And So what I decided to do, uh, thanks to the lockdown, I had a bit of spare time on my hands, is to try to go back and look at the early traces, the origins of this development to see how it came, came into being. And one of the things that is really important for all of us to understand is that you may use the word identity very often. You may talk about an identity crisis, but nobody talked about identity until very recently. There was no such, ex- I mean, nobody talked about it. The only people that talked about it were mathematicians who talked about mathematical identity. But that meant something very, very different because identity in its original philosophical sense meant the sameness. Identity referred to the sameness of an an experience, whereas today, when we talk about identity, we talk about difference, differentiation. You know, we we use this uh, idea of diversity, that somehow we get segmented into our separate identity silos. So that was very interesting, but of course, when you look at it closely, you realize that there's a very important reason why identity came into usage roughly around 30 to 40 years ago. And that was because if you know who you are, if you know where you belong, you don't talk about identity. Right? I mean, if you know that I am a Yorkshire lass or I'm you know, sort of a, a French uh, shoemaker, there is no need to say, oh, who am I? It's entirely obvious who you are. And I think that as long as you had that sense of belonging, you knew your place in the world. Nobody asked the question "Who we are." That was—that was like you know only an idiot would ask a question like that because that was self-evident. So the question becomes: Why is it that millions of people no longer know where they belong? You know, why is it that so many people no longer know their place in the world? You know, what what has happened? And a lot of Uh, my colleagues in sociology think that's the inevitable consequence of modernity that as you have a modern world you inevitably lose your links and your ties to your society and therefore the problem of belonging is a normal feature of the world we live in. I think that's wrong. I don't think there is anything inevitable about losing our place in the world, about not knowing where we belong. There's nothing natural about that. It wasn't God who said, my child, you will no longer belong here. There was nothing in the world, in the economic world, that said you are now no longer who your parents were or your grandparents were. What happened was, and this is what I write about in the beginning of my book, is that a certain project came into being. And the project that came into being, and this kicked in around the turn of the 20th century, was a project was essentially about the necessity of distancing young people in particular from their parents, of creating a psychic distance between children and their grandparents, and more importantly, an attempt to separate the young, the new generations, from the ways of the old. Because the argument was that we, you know, we are modern people, we need to leave behind the old ways of doing things. And of course, there are old ways of doing things that needs to be changed, but what they were saying was that everything that was old was by definition faulty, obsolete, and even dangerous. But the fascinating thing about this, and this is, you know, I don't get surprised very often because I'm a very old guy. I've seen the world. But the thing that really shocked me when I looked at this stuff was that the people that were arguing for the need to break with the past entirely, weren't just simply a few radicals on the left. They weren't just simply uh, sort of hardcore Bolsheviks who were arguing for revolution. The people that were also demanding that we have to break from the past, that we no longer, should no longer belong where we used to belong, were also these technocratic capitalists who were running the big businesses because they felt that uh, the new generations had to be a modern generation that had the skills and the flexibility and the adaptability in order to become part of the labor market and to make capitalism work. And that was around 1900, a long, long, long time ago. And their argument was, and this is where you had this uh, unholy alliance of American progressives and capitalists. What they were really arguing was that what we really needed to do was to ensure that people's way of doing things, what they took for granted before, was abolished and they were kind of projected into a new world. And I think that's really very important because the principal target, the principal uh, project that they had at that particular time and it continues to this day was to fundamentally, fundamentally revolutionize socialization. As most of you know, socialization means <clears throat> the transmission of ideas from one generation to another. And that's how humanity has evolved over thousands of years. They argued that we need a different kind of socialization. We can no longer allow ourselves to transmit the values of the past. We had to almost create counter values. We had to break children from the bad old ideas of the past. We had to socialize them by giving them new ways of making their way in the world. And the new ways that they came up with almost invariably was to use psychology and to essentially validate children. And this has been going on for a very long time. So for example, if you have a kid, you know that your child is never told about the virtues of courage. They never learn about the beauties of uh, sort of the, the civilizational accomplishment. What they come back with invariably, certainly from my experience, It's a little booklet with 20 smiley faces. And the better you are as a child, the more smiley faces they give you. That's called, in my book, psychological validation. You validate the child. You you, you give them uh, sort of psychological recognition at every single stage. But the problem is, is that if you don't transmit the legacy of your community to your child, you kind of dispossess them of something that is really, really precious. You dispossess them of the wisdom and the insight and the experiences of their ancestors, of their community. And instead of giving them something to make their way in the world, all you give them is a psychological diagnosis, which is what we're doing, which is why there are so many, mental health issues within the education system. But what happens is this. And if there is one point uh, that I'd like to think about, it's this. If you dispossess children of the ways of of doing things and you only give them some psychological uh, mumbo jumbo to, to kind of think about and talk about, it becomes very difficult for them to somehow overcome their identity crisis because if you understand psychology, what an identity crisis means, it's a natural phenomenon We all have an identity crisis when we are 12, 13, or 14. But the way we overcome them when we are 17, 18, or 19 is because we know our place in the world. We we, we got, we got these resources that we make our own. And these resources come from our parents and our grandparents. We make them into our own, and it allows us, it gives us the stability to know who I am. Now, if you haven't got that, then what happens is that the identity crisis that you experience as a teenager is never overcome. It's never overcome because basically you go to university, you go to work, you're still really not that sure about you know, exactly you know, who you represent, what, what you're really all about. And if you don't know who you are, you're not really sure about it, identity itself becomes really, really important. In fact, identity becomes so important that that's all you ever think about. And it becomes so important that some people, you know, kind of have this permanent quest for an identity. So they decide one day, I'm gay, next, person, next day it's, I'm trans, no, 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 I'm not binary fluid. And you kind of spend a lot of your time trying to find an identity that fits you. But the tragedy is, is that you cannot artificially adopt an identity. It's not like when you act in a play, I'm Napoleon or I'm somebody else. An identity is something that at least in some part has got to be organic to your experience and to the experience of your community and what you're all about. So my argument in the book is that the kind of fragility that we experience at the moment that's powerful in the Anglo-American world is something that has been created over decades and decades and decades. You know, It takes about five generations for many of these ideas to percolate into the mainstream. We're now at that point that the project that began around 1900 is becoming universalized you know, throughout society. And just one final point, you know, I still haven't answered the question of why the ruling elites, the cultural elites love it. You know, why is it that they you know, sort of embraced it so whole, wholeheartedly? I think the reason why identity politics has become so universally accepted by big business, by all politicians, is because they're using it as a way of legitimate their position within society. They basically have put themselves in a position where they become the validators. They validate people's identity. That's what the state is all about. So when you hear, for example, as the case last week in British Columbia, where they ruled that uh, being called by the right pronoun is a human right, they're validating everybody who wants to be called Z or ZZ or whatever. Right? They're validating that. And the thing is, well, if you're in a position of validation, then, you, then in, a, in some shape or form, you've got the authority uh, that you really require. Whenever you want to know who, are, who the problem people are, who the enemies are in this cultural battle, because it is a cultural battle, it's a cultural war, the way they give themselves away is when they use the expression, hi, I'm here to raise your awareness. Have you ever heard people trying to raise your awareness? It's an interesting idea. Hi, but, you know, what, what is awareness? And what are they raising? You know, sort of. And who gave them the moral authority to raise my awareness? What they, what they really mean when they say, and every university student that arrives on campus this year will be met by people who are determined to raise their awareness. Right? <laughs> they, you know, they will be met by them. What raising awareness actually means is I'm aware, you're not. I mean that's the implication. I'm aware, you're not. And more importantly, you have no choice. You have no choice but to adopt and embrace my insight. Because otherwise you will not be aware. And if you're not aware, then you more or less become a cultural criminal which is what most of us are in this room. You know, we've committed the cultural crime of of, of calling into question their their authority to influence and determine and validate our identity. So that's the thing I discuss over the decades and decades in the book. And I hope that uh, some of you get a chance to read it uh, because uh, I would love to have your criticisms and your questions uh, in the coming year. Thank you. Very
3: good,
0: very good. Right, I'm going to come straight out to you guys because this is a short session, we're ending at um, quarter past, so far away.
4: Oh, thank you. Um, so I'm an engineer, so I'm a very practical person, uh, and as much as I like to hear uh, academics talking about abs- more abstract ideas, uh, I think sometimes the, the word... Um, identity the way that you use it seems to be very different from uh, what ordinary people define it. Like, when I hear people talking about their identity, I often hear something like, this characteristic of mine has had so many impact on so many different aspects of mine that I regard it as central to my identity. Um, so basically coming back to the question is, um... Like, do you think that there is sometimes misunderstanding between the way you speak about identity and the way that, that more the plaid talks about it? Uh,
5: thank you for all three of you, actually, for a really exceptional opening to this session. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Um, while you were both talking, I just found myself casting my mind back to the 2019 election in this country. Um, and it made me wonder whether another factor which affects the kind of splintering and fracturing of our identity is that we now have this perception that it fractures into so many different pieces each of which has a corresponding orthodoxy and when it becomes this complex perhaps those orthodoxies begin to contradict uh, just a, a very quickly a personal example so when that election was happening i was a young person and a student so you know i was naturally left leaning perhaps Uh, I'm also Jewish, Um, and so, you know, I had a view about the Labour Party, my parents as well, my siblings as well, um, my synagogue community on on the occasions when I did visit them as well. Um, Of course, there are left-leaning Jews and right-leaning Jews, of course, but there was kind of a consensus in the community. I really don't speak for everyone here, but there was a sort of consensus that, um, you know, voting for Labour at that moment was not necessarily a very safe thing to do. So suddenly you have this war inside oneself happening and you know that drove me to the verge of a breakdown almost so it was a really powerful potent thing Uh, so I just love to hear your comments uh, on that phenomenon.
6: Uh, Yeah I've got the same question to both of you really which is that and I appreciate both of you had very little time but you could read both of what you said as what both of you said as conspiratorial so for example Rakib I I completely Mm. share your distaste for the grievance industry yeah. But when you talk about the grievance industrial complex, for example, I start thinking, well, is there some kind of mm. conspiracy, conspiracy of leftists mm. to create this?
1: Yeah, if you buy the book, you'll see it's not. So. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I yeah. thought you might Give us, yeah. give us that, a preview, actually, <laughs> yeah. If, if sure. you can explain a bit more.
6: And similarly with you, Frank, I mean, I'm sure in your book you're, you have more time to elaborate your argument, but when you talk about the project, you, it could be read to mean, again, there's this conspiracy of people trying to create identity politics. So maybe if you could just fill out the
0: arguments a bit more lovely thanks thank you um
7: a question really for uh, i think more probably f- to frank more on the the when you mentioned the point about um identity being meaningful when it has an organic connection to yourself which i kind of really agree with and how there's you know there there does seem to be a real thing not of just distancing people from the past but actively posing the past as harmful like in as much as you have any Any affections or you continue any past traits it's a problem that needs to be dealt with Um, and I also wondered when you said that thing about experience because isn't there also another I don't know where it's coming from but a kind of complementary in a negative way trend of really kind of narrowing the scope of people's experience to you know under the safety therapeutic culture for shorthand so it's like when kids at school, their actual experience is being much more monitored, and kind of reduced in their scope of being able to actively, freely find out things for themselves. Um, and now, even now, when you look at the curriculum debates, it's even like vicarious experience through arts and literature is also being restricted, in that you know a sort of one narrative interpretation is to be had. So I just wondered whether you thought there was a, a bit more to uh the project of um, delegitimizing the past
8: um this is a question to both of you but i just want to raise that through one of the uh, a point that frank makes in his book about the main thing around the identity crisis is really a confusion amongst adults about their own values as one of the key points and so i was just wondering rather than focusing on the discussion about young people and their socialization what do you feel about the activism of parents, which would be the flip side of that discussion, which is they may equally feel estranged from the discussions about the socialisation of their children, and potentially the anti-democratic nature of some of that. So you might have uh, parents challenging um, uh, teachers outside schools in Birmingham, for example, about, around uh, LGBT, or around masks wearing in schools. And in America, the current horrendous discussion about parents being treated as terrorists um, for raising discussions around critical race theory or around, um, again, um, wearing masks, in the children wearing masks in, in class. So there's obviously fissures there within the adult community as well over authority on the socialization of children. I wonder where you stand on that.
0: Thank you. I'm going to take one more. We're going to come back to the panel briefly, and I'll be ba- back, back out in rounds. So yeah.
4: So, okay. Uh, do, do, we, do we define our own identity, or is it, is it something that other people define? Is it... Where do we good get question. our identity? Do... It, it,
9: yeah, that, that's the question.
4: a yeah. good, yeah.
0: nice. good question. Very good question. Okay, Rakeep and Frank, just two minutes each to respond to anything you want there.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I think that just addressing the conspiratorial point, I think one case I'd use is uh, the Runnymede Trust. So uh, the year 2000, I'm 10 years of age. um, The Runnymede Trust published a report, the PAREC report, which essentially says that Britain is a model for race relations, it's a far more relaxed society when it comes to diversity than other countries such as France, Germany, the United States. And it also suggests that the view that racism is widespread in 2000 Britain is partisan and skewed. Now, we'll bring it forward by 20 years or so, the Runnymede Trust, the same institution publishes a report which essentially describes England as a systemically racist hellhole. Now, I'm I'm not sure that many would support the view that from the year 2000 to the year 2021, that Britain has descended from being a model of race relations to being this fundamentally flawed society when it comes to racial equality. And I think that comes to my, you know, this comes to the crux of the book. Why has that happened? How is that an institution can publish such an optimistic report one that is evidence-driven, which essentially says that Britain is, is very much a model for race relations, that in compa- in when compared with other countries, the level of social cohesion in our multiracial society is something to be positive over. And then 20 years down the line, it will publish a report which argues that systemic racism is limiting the enjoyment of basic rights among ethnic minority people in Britain. Well, so that, that is something that I don't think that's quite conspiratorial. I'm actually using two reports published by the same supposedly racial equality think tank. Um, so I think I've, well, I'd like to think I've addressed that point fairly clearly. Uh, in terms of the questions on identity, I do feel that increasingly there's elements of the left, but I do also think this is not something that's exclusive to the left. I think that the people of different ideological shades do this. They ultimately, they instruct people how they should see themselves essentially in terms of their identity. And it, it goes a bit further than that. It, it also, it, it gets to the stage where there is, it's so paternalistic. It's telling people that because of this particular element of your identity, this is why you're disadvantaged. And I think that's a seriously poor way to go about politics in general. And I think that does weaken the health of our democracy.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, throughout history, uh, there were institutions and people that, told, uh, that instructed you to see yourself in a particular way. There's nothing new about that. What is new is that whereas in the past it was, uh, it was the same message directed at everybody, you know, you're English or you're Jewish or whatever, today you're getting conflicting messages and the messages change very, very fast because identity, uh, the politicization of identity rends, renders it very fragile and therefore what you've got is a situation where it becomes almost a, a, a kind of a never-ending process where just when you think that this is what I am, you know, sort of something else occurs. Because the one thing that we haven't discussed here is that all this discussion on identity takes place in the context of a culture war, where every single dimension of our personality, our lifestyle, becomes politicized from what you eat. Imagine you know, people having strong views about eating meat. Right? I mean, this is weird, you know, sort of <laughs> people having strong views about. Being, not being vegan but just vegetarian and somehow you're immoral. I mean something strange is really happening and people are criticising you for the clothes you wear because you've culturally appropriated this. Everything becomes sub- subjugated to this and that's really what has changed, what is very, very new. I think that uh, you're right to raise obviously uh, a project it doesn't mean that it, it realises its objective but what I was really trying to get at is that something that begins to uh, sort of be raised and discussed. First of all, amongst the the rich elites in the United States over six generations because that's how long it takes, gradually percolates into the mainstream of society. But even today, not every member of society buys into this and there's a lot of normal people who are horrified by what they experience but what has changed is that all the dominant institutions of our society, the media, you know, sort of the political institutions, the public sector, Private sector have embraced this as their own, so that's in, in that sense, it, it's really uh, kind of worked quite, a, quite well. well. I just want to end with a little example, in relation to what the the guy who comes from a Jewish background, reacts to the Labour Party said. Your your reaction is like all of our reaction, because once identity is in the air, we all get infected by it. It's like a disease that you cannot really free yourself from. And I had this I had this moment. I couldn't believe I said this. I was watching the, 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 uh, the final tennis match in between Emma Radicanu and that person. I don't usually watch tennis, but this was really quite compelling. And all of a sudden, I turned to my wife, and I said, Anne, isn't it nice that she's wearing a cross? Now, what was really weird about it was that number one, I'm not Christian, right? I've got no Christian, you know, usually I don't like crosses, to be honest. But in this, all of a sudden, I said, isn't it nice that she's wearing a cross? And I said, well, why did I say that and the reason why I said it is because Christianity has become a pathologized identity. Because when you have a cultural world of identities, it isn't just simply about who you are but who you're not allowed to be or what kind of identity makes you a lesser being and under those circumstances, we got to pick our allies. So, the fact that I reacted that way indicates that we're in the middle of a, a real moral struggle about trying to work out for ourselves you know, sort of where we want to stand and what kind of uh, uh, politics of identity we want to fight against. And I think your reaction, like my reaction, is the common reaction in a world where identity is destiny, at least that's the way they project it.
0: OK, thanks. Um, right, we have to go right to the back, gentleman right at the back.
3: Far away. Hi, sorry, um, it's addressed to Frank in particular, but I love your work. Um, Frank, I've read, uh, I'm working my way through your book, and um, um, so far it's fantastic, but I get a really overwhelming sense of doom reading it. Because, (laughs) as the title suggests, a hundred years in the making, and I really don't have a hundred years to turn that around. (laughs) Um, And Of course, I'm sure it's my problem, but what I'm kind of struggling with is the idea that this is a processor, or a simple mechanical processor, percolation, that eventually it will just work its way through society, and there we, here we are. I understood it. I want to understand it better, and I hope I'm onto something. When um, this hundred years in the making, it's important to understand that, but perhaps more so that it happens in times, a historical impact. And what I mean by that is, I'm old enough to remember um, the 70s, um, and that was a really important moment where it felt like, for the first time, young people were saying, I don't want what you had to their parents. And it was really, you know, palpable. We rejected the idea of job for life. We rejected the idea of working men's clubs and everything that that entailed. And the reason I mention this is because I think that was a high impact point, historically speaking, that launched or lurched this process on a wee bit more. And right up to date now, the culture wars um, seems to be another high impact point I guess my question is, I don't like to see it as a linear reading. I'd rather see it as impact points, because it feels like we might actually be able to do something about that. Uh,
6: I wanted to talk a bit about uh, community, uh, because we talk about identity, and I think uh, community is a similar um, word, but the meaning has been uh, corrupted to mean something specific, uh, like the gay community or the black community or the white community. Uh, But now it's even so specific as the... I mean, I have done some computer coding, the Python coding community. And I have to tell you, there is no Python coding community. It's just people who code in Python. (laughs) But I I think of the the, um, phrase, it takes a village, um, which comes from Africa, I realise. And I don't come from a village, I come from a small market town. And when I grew up, the community was everyone. So it was um, the rich people and the poor people, Uh, the criminals, uh, the drunks, um, the intelligent people and the stupid people, a lot of people you didn't like, but they were all part of our community. And I think we've lost this
10: idea that we are one people. Thank
0: you. you. Microphone
10: there. Yeah. Yeah, um, Sorry, again to Frank. Um, You've been talking about tradition for a long time in your books. And when you originally started talking about it, because of my background, I would think you're talking about the collapse of political traditions. So I would think, yeah, so it's the death of conservatism, death of liberalism, death of socialism, all these things seem relevant. But increasingly, the more and more I read your stuff, it seems to be about pre-political things, right, stuff of everyday life. So something like common sense seems to be of significance. But it's hard to work out exactly what that means. Yeah, so the, I suppose the question is, just, is what traditions are you talking about? Because I can understand the new elites and if they disconnect people from other people, then that's a serious problem in terms of understanding identity. But I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on what, what is it you're talking about in terms of traditions is it aspects of the political? Is it pre-political? Is it the everyday life stuff?
4: I have an observation to share. So um, one time I live in the US, so I also went to a really elite, only 6% percent sub college. So I was educated in that culture of know your social academic status, know your identity, know where you're coming from, your ethnic, your cultural. So um, I really appreciate intersectionality. I really appreciate my role in society. And um, even as privileged guilt, but I'm also Chinese, so when I talk to my parents about, oh, we have that upper middle class obligation to help the poor people, and they're like, no, no. We are just one country, we don't have this distinction. So I'm thinking, yes, all these lessons in um, liberal arts education about identities, about intersectionality, about differences, obligations, help me to see the word differences to, to help me to um, become a more um, aware aware of differences, aware of discriminations, but also that pushed our individuality too far. We're just so individual, we just lost that collectivity with our family, with our compatriots, with our uh, community members. So that's uh, my identity crisis in thinking about identity, living both the U.S. and China, having that cultural conflict, different cultural understanding of self and community.
0: Lovely, thank you. So whoever's got the microphone there, stand up. Um,
9: yeah, something um, it was Frank said talked about uh, identity pont- politics contradicting my reality at the outset, and then something Rakim said as well about the 75% of Muslims find that Britain is totally a good place, a place to live as a Muslim. Place to yeah. To be Muslim, etc. And you used the phrase rather than Islamophobia, anti-Muslim prejudice, but it recalls a phrase that I've heard before, like what is the good immigrant? And as you talk about, therefore, the possibility of being the acceptable Muslim, the acceptable trans, the acceptable gay, and if you're the unacceptable trans, Muslim, gay, whatever, etc., then you're not being validated, to use Frank's phrase, by society, by those in power, because they're choosing who they rubber-stamp as the acceptable version within that identity. So it's this behavioral idea that you can be any of these things so long as you're our version of it or the good version of it, and you adopt our pre-existing values rather than threaten or challenge them.
11: Thank you. Um, My name is Amir. I've been studying this uh, racial identity in America for the last seven years from the death of Michael Brown, which spawned the Black Lives Matter movement. And I've been watching very closely all the lies and the fraudulent figures, et cetera, data that's been gathered as evidence for systematic racism in America. And I, my only question is why, when this happens in America, that tumor of lies and deceit metastas- metastasizes and comes over to the UK? Why does that happen? Thank you.
0: Okay, great, thanks. Um- Frank, just a brief comment on anything there, really like a minute
3: to both of you and so, then we'll
0: go back
2: out. Yeah, the reason why that happens is because of American soft power. So virtually everything that we're discussing today has its origins in the West Coast of the United States and is gradually transmitted. The, you know, identity politics was not born in Britain but was imported into Britain and elsewhere. And if you want to really understand visually the answer to your question, I always tell people to watch Netflix because every Netflix program aristocratizes certain identities, a trans person is always the most sensitive on that program, uh, a gay person is almost as sensitive but at the time you get down the hierarchy, the white heterosexual man is clumsy, a bit of an oaf, probably beats up you know, the first person he bumps into. And, and the, kind of, the, the, the message, the, the visual message that you get on those programs which is watched all over the world is that it's not really cool to be a white male heterosexual. But heteronormativity is a no-no, and that's something that you know, people pick up very, very fast, and uh, that is why Britain became so ready. But there's one thing that we haven't discussed, which is that the precondition for this flourishing so fast so much was the collapse of the conventional political ideologies that used to sustain and inspire Western societies. They have all gone and they left a vacuum
1: which has just been very fast filled by this kind of stuff. Ricky. Yeah, I mean, I'd make the point that in terms of the United States, I think what the United States is really suffering from is this really toxic mixture of aggressive, materialistic individualism and its tribal racial identity politics. I think the combination of the two is really... It's really weakened social cohesion in the United States. I think in terms of the influence of... Um, the sort of US racial politics, I think it's mainly down to the fact that there's a real intellectual deficit on the contemporary British left. And that just, it's almost a brainless importation of these grievance culture wars in the United States to the extent that a BLM protest in London, you can hear chants of don't shoot. <laughs> uh, which which did puzzle me, if truth be told. So I think that the, real, the, the reality of the matter is. The most successful anti-racist movements are the ones that really concentrate on their own country and society, because then they can see where the problems are domestically and they can come up with unique, domestic-specific solutions to those problems, and at the moment the British left is very poor on that.
0: Okay, great. We're going to come out for some (laughs) brief comments now, lads, brief, and we'll get around as many as we can. So let's start over here.
12: Hi, um, I'll try and be brief. Um, I'm from a mixed background, my mum's from somewhere else and my dad's... English, Um, and I couldn't wait to go off travelling because I was pretty down on England. I was like, oh, it's really bad here, I hate it. And I I went off around the world. And um, what I loved was every country I went to did have a flavour and a uniqueness, and all their their culture, and people celebrated their cultures. And then coming back home, I realised what I'd missed, and it was the humour and self deprivation that we have. And our ability to take the piss and all that—all those things, I just miss so much. And then I thought, well, we've, have we gone from self-deprecation in a kind of really healthy way yeah. to a sense of yeah. we have to hate who we so, are now? Cool. And I... I felt the most controversial thing I could do right now is to go onto Facebook and say, I'm proud to be British and I love this country and watch all all everyone lose it and start having a go at me for being some kind of far-right nutter just for saying that I'm proud to be here. Um, So I just thought that's, you know,
8: (laughs) a bit of a problem.
0: Stand up with the mic here.
13: My question is, isn't anti-racism today a bigger problem than racism? In fact, I'd go further and say that the racism of old has now yielded to the anti-racism of today. And what I mean by that is that people are now treated preferentially if they can play an identity card, which is why Frank is quite correct in saying that all of our cultural institutions have been taken over by the notion of identity politics. And that, that's why I think, Rakib, you know that when you say you are, by background, a Bangladeshi who is a Muslim, you know that doors open. Now, I don't blame you or anyone else from using whatever protected characteristics you have to your advantage, but I think we have to recognise that this is the problem society faces today because it is divisive and divisive of a very different kind of old, but in essence, it, it expresses the same problem, which is that we refuse to treat people equally and we refuse to judge them on character because we are judging them on the basis of their identities.
14: Yes, I wanted just to ask a little bit about historical context to some of these ideas that we've been discussing and debating. So in terms of my background, my father was Romanian, Holocaust survivor, my mother French, also a Holocaust survivor. I was brought up not very far from here, not knowing I was Jewish, barely mentioning anything to do with Romanian identity, whether it was music, culture, cooking, whatever. So in terms of... And, and the issue of identity for me now is definitely um, heightened by Brexit. I'm very surprised that's something we haven't yet raised today. Um, so I've sought to you know, explore whether I could be Romanian. Could I be French? The answer for both seems to be no, which is a little odd. Uh, could I be Jewish M- or our documents were destroyed? The answer also seems to be no. Does that impact my identity in any real sense? Does that make me less able to express and live who I am? Is it just paperwork that's missing? These are you know, questions that I would be interested to discuss.
15: As Frank was giving his presentation, my eyes were drawn up to these mad words above our heads. Holy, holy is a true light and passing wonderful, etc." And I wonder if we're missing something by forgetting that the 20th century, as Frank was talking about, was the century where religion died authority died the way that we used to manage society was that god said who was in and out who was right and wrong Um, and not only that but it managed our guilt and actually identity politics has stepped into this space and now manages our guilt for us this is the way we know identity is the way we now manage guilt so it's not a conspiracy it's not an elite project it's the natural thing that happens when religion dies when the authority dies and unless we, find, we return to religion, which seems unlikely, or find a replacement, I don't think we're getting out of this.
10: Okay,
11: thanks. Hello there. Um, I just want to make a really quick point, not so much in defense of identity politics, but just as a perhaps a brief explainer. Um, I've grown up, I was born in London, Um, lived my whole life in in London but going to university during the 1990s when you meet people from all over the world I spotted how passionate people were about talking about their own particular background and where they came from and particular like my family background is Irish and I found very very quickly I could silence somebody by talking about what was happening over in Northern Ireland and it's This is the point that I wanted to make. It's really enjoyable. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, I think, worth acknowledging. It's quite an important psychological insight how fantastically enjoyable it is. But it's also um, an avenue of attack that you can use. If you point out to someone that you're having a a discussion with saying you really enjoy uh, using your Irish background, your back background, or, or, or whatever else, if you point that out, but also... The only way you can make it work is to point out your own identity, how you use it, and then say that the person you're talking to also uses theirs. It's very effective. So use Voltaire's argument. Uh, identify the flaw in yourself, and then you can uh, point out the flaw in somebody else.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Right, I'm sorry, the, this gentleman who has the microphone is the last, and I'm sorry, we're running over. Yeah, so. yeah.
9: my question is, is to Frank. Frank has spoken about how this process of questioning of tradition has been going on for the last five generations, and that process of change has been uh, um, brought into society. But it's only in the last two generations that the questioning of Western values and culture has really taken hold in in the society. And people in the West are now being, uh, young people especially, are being urged to uh, be ashamed of their culture, be ashamed of their tradition. And the uh, universities have begun to cut back, or at least to term- often to terminate courses in Western civilization and Western culture. Why, why is it only now that that's occurring?
0: Okay, thanks very much. Okay, f- just a minute or two from each of you. And I mean, uh, one thing that I was thinking about is, you know, th- uh, and you made a joke about Irish. I mean, I often do turn up the ushers <laughs> and all of that kind of thing when I want a drink from someone or something. You know, you're a bit more popular as an Irish person or a Londoner than you are as someone from the general southeast. But, you know, uh, someone mentioned Rakib using his identity. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some cases, it, it becomes, as Frank mentioned, in relation to the culture wars, it becomes important. Like, I've never thought of myself as, you know, a, a woman being central to my identity, but when I have you know, lots of people on Twitter and elsewhere telling me that I can't say that, suddenly I start to think, well, actually, I do care, and maybe I do want to use that identity, and maybe I do want to weaponize it sometimes um, in certain contexts, and think, you know, our identity is important to us, in term- surely, in terms of understanding... What we believe in or what groups we ally with, uh, and is there some way in which that's just being bastardized today rather than actually throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as it were? I'm going to start with Raqib and then come to Frank.
1: Yeah, um, just to address the gentleman's point here, um, I appreciate that being of Bangladeshi Muslim origin can be an advantage. I mean, it meant that I was more likely to be born to a married couple, I was more likely to be born in a family unit which is intergenerationally cohesive. I was more likely to be born in a household where academic excellence is promoted. I was also born in a group where, for example, you're less likely to fall into the trap of um, really negative circumstances, such as drug addiction. So thank you for making that point. Um, But in terms of the broader discussion on anti-racism, I do believe that all too often, we're hearing voices from the anti-racist movement where it's going to stage it's almost deciding on people's level of racial and ethnic authenticity. It's ultimately about the fact that your loyalty should primarily be with a particular ethnic group or a racial group or a religious group. And I think that's where you see where I feel that these tribal identities do pose a threat to national cohesion, where people are essentially being encouraged not just to be loyal to a particular group, but there has to be a certain form of loyalty And it's almost like they're the moral guardians in terms of deciding who's truly loyal to their own racial and ethnic group. And I think that's precisely why, as I tackle in this book, you do see more ethnic minority British voters leaving the Labour Party, abandoning the Labour Party, because the vast majority of ethnic minority people, they, they actually do value their British national identity. They are generally trusting of a wide range of public institutions, and they're ultimately focused on living in a society which is fairer, and they don't expect favours. So they're increasingly alienated from what we're seeing as the cultural developments on the modern left.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to make a distinction between identity and the politicisation of identity. You know, we all have a persona. Uh, we, We use it in all kinds of different ways. I mean, the only time I ever used it very consciously was when I was a young man in the 60s in New York, where being Jewish was seen as a plus to meet people of the opposite sex, because they thought, they thought that Jewish men were interesting. Absolutely. I don't know why, but that was, that was, that, that was the myth that was going around. And I, obviously, I, I used it to my benefit, you know, sort of, <laughs> as, as one does. Uh, nothing really wrong with that. I didn't politicize it. And even though I come from an atheist family, uh, uh, who's never been religious, it, it was something that, you know, we all do. I think we've all done something like that. I think that um, getting back to religion, I, I don't think that religion can come back in anything like the way it was in the past. You have to remember that religious institutions were complicit in giving way to identity politics. I mean, if you talk to any Anglican vicar these days, I don't know, they read the book, you know. I mean, they, they will, they will give me a little, little kind of uh, sort of speech on whiteness. Talk to reformed Jews these days, they will, they sound just like their. Anglican and Catholic colleagues. They all embrace this kind of diversity kind of stuff and have really become theologically illiterate. And theological literacy is what is taught in in the different institutions that train people in religion. I think that the real problem is not the loss of religion. I think the real problem is our loss of confidence in what I would call civilizational values. And I think that relates to your point. We lost confidence in the civilizational values, particularly in Western societies, where for a variety of reasons the, the cultural elites of the West have become so uh, estranged from what those, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Greek Roman tradition, the Judeo-Christian, all these things are something that doesn't mean very much to them. And I think in those circumstances, all the cultural institutions have opened the door for countercultural values, which are hostile, bitterly hostile. I think we have to stop talking about the anti-racist movement because the anti-racist movement today is in the business of racializing everything. I mean they are thoroughly racist because they they see the whole world through the prism of race and they become enslaved to race to such a point that they are actually creating racism in places where it was very weak to begin with. Mm -hmm. I think we have to go on the offensive against them because to be honest, we are the genuine anti-racist. I mean our impulses are, are the ones that are universalistic and genuinely uh, promoting equal opportunities for everybody. So we should make that point in the strongest possible terms.
0: Can we thank our speakers? Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.